Kerry Bellinger. Uh, during lunch, I've been meditating on something Michael said about the nascent book world of the University of Virginia. I think that's where book schools speak a bit, because it seems to me that when Rare Book School came here in 92, Virginia had been pretty much the center of bibliographical enterprise uh, since the days of Fritz and Bowers uh, and others in the 1940s. That being said, it was certainly a very different book world, and it certainly, certainly was not student-centered. One of the things that was certainly true in my day as a graduate student, and to some extent is still true, is the well-known principle that graduate students are peasants. <laughs> they exist primarily for the benefit of others. And I think that one of the remarkable things that Michael Suarez has done is to change that so far as bibliography is concerned, so far as the study of books is concerned. One of the things that helps is that to a much greater extent, until at least the recent past, bibliography was terminally unfashionable. It was pretty much the kiss of death if your dissertation was thought to be bibliographical. Because, of course, to the world at large, including the English department world at large, that meant the list at the end of a term paper. Uh, you still run into that once in a while. Uh, but things are very much better, and certainly it is Michael's Fair Book School that has been the uh, or at least a very substantial, either the most important or a very substantial reason for it, probably the most important. Although one of the faults of Rare Book School directors, I think, is the l'état-c'est-moi problem. <laughs> uh, Rare Book School invented most of the pedagogy of teaching the history of the book, we say. And certainly we invented a great deal of it in one place or another. Uh, but long may the school flourish as it now most certainly is because it does good work. The jury awarded two honorable mentions as well as a prize winner. In alphabetical order, one is Michaela Joan Kowalski, PhD in the Department of History. Is she here? Ah. <laughs> she attended Roche Chartier's Rare Book School course, Textual Mobilities, Works, Books of Reading Across Early Modern Europe, held last summer at the University of Pennsylvania. Her fellowship project focus on American travel narratives of Theodore Debris and the 
West African ones of Antonio Cavazza. Is Loretta Romero here? Yeah. Uh, she is a PhD candidate in the Department of Spanish. She was formerly she was formerly a PhD candidate in the Department uh, of Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese, and I'm sure of a successful one. Uh, she too attended Roger Chartier's course. Her fellowship project studied paratextual aspects of and reader responses to La Celestina, the great late 15th century Spanish dialogue by Fernando de Rojas. The winner is Neil D. Curtis, PhD candidate in the Department of English. He attended Nick Wilding's course, Rare Book School course, Forgeries, Facsimiles, and Sophisticated Copies, held at UVA last summer. Mr. Curtis was graduated from Columbia University School of General Studies in 2014 with a BA in English and Comp Lit, summa cum laude. He has been a Baddiston Fellow of the Bibliographical Society of the University of Virginia, a Fellow of the Keenan Endowment Fund of the Academical Village, a two-time Fellow with UVA's Institute of the Humanities and Global Cultures, and a Fellow of Monticello's International Center for Jefferson Studies. With fellow English Department students Sam Lemley and Madeline Zayner, he has been researching the early history of the original UVA library when it was housed in the rotunda. Using the bibliographical training they received in David Vandermeulen's graduate seminars as well as several rare book school courses, they've built a database that includes short titles for every book known to have been shelved in the rotunda in its first decade. The next phase of their project plans to realize Thomas Jefferson's planned use of the rotunda's dome room as a planetarium using digital projectors to cast a high resolution star map onto the dome room ceiling. Set to launch in early November with the two-day symposium, the planetarium will have an accompanying exhibition designed in collaboration with the Rare Book School, featuring books and other objects from the original Rotunda Library and a program of community tours, lectures, and events. When I came to UVA in 1992, the ceiling of the dome room was uh, plastered in acoustical tile, the kind with the little holes. University architect told me at the time, in the dome room, I make it a principle never to look up. <laughs> So it's an enormous pleasure for many of us to think that we're going to be able to see the dome room uh, as Jefferson envisaged but never saw. Remember, Jefferson never saw the ceiling of the dome room. <coughs> His last appearance in the room was uh, at an occasion celebrating Lafayette's visit, but the uh, room did not yet have a ceiling of any kind. Mr. Curtis's English department dissertation 
deals with the influence of forgery on the development of bibliographical techniques of detection in 18th century England. I'd like to begin by thanking some of the people that make RBS the magical place that it is. Michael Suarez, Terry Bellinger, Barbara Heritage, Ruth Ellen St. Ange, and Jeremy Dibble. Uh, when a hand-illustrated copy of Galileo's Sideris Nuncius made its way to the New York book dealer's Martian Land in 2005, scholars jumped at the opportunity to verify its authenticity. German art historian Horst Bredekamp edited a two-volume study entitled Galileo's O that detailed the significance of this resurfaced copy of the Italian astronomer's work. Provenance evidence appeared to confirm the authenticity of the Martian Land copy of Sideris Nuncius. The title page bore an inscription purportedly belonging to Galileo, and the book even boasted a library stamp associated with Prince Federico Cesi, Galileo's patron. High-tech instruments were used to refute the possibility that this book was a modern confection. Microscopes revealed that the impressions of the letter forms matched the depth of what one would expect from those made by a printing press in the hand press period. An analysis of the ink failed to identify the presence of any chemicals not commonly used to manufacture ink during Galileo's lifetime. Underlying this investigation was an assumption about the incredible skill needed to forge a whole book. Surely, the book would broadcast its status as fake in a number of obvious ways, the signs of its true origins made visible by the battery of high-tech test, high tests the Galileo's O-team had dutifully put it through. Nick Wilding, book historian at Georgia State University, approached the copy of Sedaris Nuncius with the opposite assumption, that it may have indeed been a forgery, and what followed was a virtuosic performance of bibliographical detection. The book's absence from all surviving inventories of Chesey's library was the first strike against its authenticity. The Galileo's O team had accounted for this absence by presuming that another, now lost, inventory must have contained a record of this precious book. But a strict adherence to bibliographical principles prohibits such speculation. Wilding turned his attention to the title page's inscription, which appeared to indicate that Galileo's quill had been poorly inked, causing it to dig into the paper. While Bredekamp thought this feature of the inscription attested to its authenticity, capturing the palpable pride Galileo felt for the accomplishment immortalized by the book, Wilding observed that only a metal nib and not the soft point of a quill could have been responsible for that kind of damage to a book leaf. From there, a cascade of bibliographical evidence contradicted Bredekamp's interpretation of the book's origins. A re-examination of its paper revealed cotton linters, anachronistic material not used in the manufacture of paper until the early 19th century. Suspecting now that the book was produced by some technology other than movable type, Wilding inspected its ink marks. On a piece of type, the letter form, or face, rests on top of what is called the shoulder. Thus raised, the inked faces of type leave an impression when a damp sheet of paper is pressed down onto the form, the array of type composed for one side of a sheet. Ink would occasionally drip past the face of a piece of type down onto the shoulder supporting the letter form. The protruding faces would prevent the accidentally inked shoulders from leaving any kind of impression in the paper. They'd merely be stray marks lightly resting on the surface of the sheet. But Wilding's, Wilding's inspection revealed that the shoulder marks in the copy of Sideris Nuncius 
were exactly the same depth as the impressions left by the typefaces. The book, it turned out, had been produced with photopolymer plates, a process that does not discriminate between different kinds of marks in the object it is used to reproduce. The Martian land copy was indeed a modern confection that would have eluded detection if not for Wilding's keen bibliographical eye. Last summer, in his RBS course, I had the privilege of learning firsthand from Professor Wilding what it takes to detect a fake. Over an intense week, Professor Wilding trained us to notice what he calls ruptures in the space-time continuum. <clears throat> and we attuned ourselves to physical anachronisms in maddeningly deceptive texts. We marveled at the artistry of pen facsimiles, handwritten pages passing themselves off as the products of relief printing. We chased down wormholes in sophisticated copies to establish which leaves had been inserted at a later date, and noted the broken fibers resulting from scraped-in watermarks in several other mendacious books. What became increasingly clear to me in Professor Wilding's course was that the detective of forgery, like any bibliographer, understands the book not only as a repository of a sequence of symbols, but also, and even primarily, as a three-dimensional object. Every physical feature, whether the product of honest or duplicitous practices, broadcasts the story of its origins. The forged Galileo episode demonstrates what natural bedfellows forgery and bibliography make. Forgery has, to be sure, been seen as an activity closely allied with the emergence of certain disciplines and epistemological shifts. And yet, relatively little attention has been given to the ways that the detection of forgeries might have spurred the development of bibliographical techniques. Anthony Grafton's seminal study, Forgers and Critics, argues that the methods forgers used throughout history influenced and even preceded methods of scholarly criticism. Other studies similarly treat forgery as participating in a kind of dialectical dance, focusing, for example, on what 18th century debates surrounding imposture reveal about the period's, quote, conceptions of reality. <clears throat> Grafton's study stresses continuity in the long history of forgery rather than change. Though he does note that, quote, new ways of forging require new methods of detection, no sustained treatment of the relationship between forgery and bibliographical methods of detection is offered. Building off of Grafton's study and the work of scholars like Paul Baines and Jack Lynch, I explore the ways that forgery attuned readers to the materiality of textual documents in the 18th century, and how the techniques of detection that emerged in the period began to crystallize into a discernible method that is still with us today as the field of bibliography. The concentration of controversies surrounding literary impostures in the 18th century makes it an especially appealing period through which to think about the consequences forgery might have for a wider culture. Thomas Chatterton, perhaps the most famous 18th century deceiver, produced and circulated fake 15th century manuscripts to corroborate his published deceptions. The young poet had access to a muniment room in the Church of St. Mary Redcliffe that contained a cache of authentic 15th century manuscripts. He concocted the literary output of Thomas Rowley, a fictitious 15th century monk, and claimed he discovered the Rowley pieces in St. Mary Redcliffe's muniment room. Imposture, indeed, seemed to be everywhere. The found manuscript Chatterton deployed had much in common with the practices of early novelists, who frequently masqueraded as the editors of found manuscripts. The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe was, the nameless editor insists, written by himself. Samuel Richardson followed suit, posing as the editor of found familiar letters for his epistolary novel, Pamela. Pleasure to read. 
Um, imposture was so prevalent in the 18th century book trade that it became a convention of publication and its strategies were as much visual as they were verbal. As critics have noted, the material embodiment of text shaped the reading experience of 18th century English men and women. The persuasive force of a title page's specious truth claims is predicated upon the idea that non-linguistic visual features, what Jerome McGann calls bibliographical codes, help authorize a text posing as something it's not. And outright forgeries, I argue, deploy bibliographical codes with a degree of intentionality that other categories of literature don't. The deceptive products of forgers can reveal much about the overlapping manuscript and print cultures of the period, as fakers tried to anticipate what material forms their readers would accept as genuine. Just as important to understanding textual materiality in the period's evolving media landscape are the contemporary responses to such impostures. The techniques of detection that arose in response to a deluge of fakes indicate an increasing sensitivity to the materiality of textual documents. So in addition to a discernible preoccupation with imposture in the period's fiction, the 18th century saw the development of much stricter laws concerning criminal forgery. At the beginning of the century, capital punishment for forgery only applied to those forging paper instruments issuing from the Bank of England. But in 1729, a statute was passed that made the forgery of any paper instruments eligible for capital, capital, capital punishment. Further, the statute, which legal scholar Randall McGowan characterizes as sweeping in general, was amazingly democratic in its dispensation of justice. Forging a paper instrument for any amount was now punishable by death. McGowan notes that the sweeping nature of the 1729 statute was somewhat unique for capital legislation, peculiar in its sheer repetitiveness, the act is worth quoting at length. If any person shall make, forge, or counterfeit, or cause or procure to be falsely made, forged, or counterfeited, or willingly act or assist in the false making, forging, or counterfeiting, any deed, will, testament, bond, writing obligatory, and it goes on, it names promissory notes twice for some reason, uh, shall be deemed guilty of felony and suffer death as a felon without benefit of clergy. So something forged is something made. The language seems at pains to demote false paper instruments to the realm of the material. The statute, which again does not differentiate between monetary amounts when it meets out justice, is unconcerned with the meaning the letter forms inscribed on the fortune of surfaces express. So stripped of symbolic exchange value, these paper instruments are removed from an economic system reliant on circulation and reimagined as essentially physical objects. Thus conceived, forged paper instruments seem primed for bibliographical inspection. They are, in short, objects that carry primarily bibliographical rather than linguistic codes. The law's decidedly material way of describing criminal forgery partakes in that other sense of the word denoting the activities of a blacksmith. As Samuel Johnson's dictionary has it, a forger is first one who makes or forms. Chatterton scholar Nick Groom traces the etymology of forgery, emphasizing its kinship with acts of physical making. Across various contexts, Groom points out, forgery preserves its association with construction. As is the case with literary forgery, criminal forgery draws attention back to the text scene of origin, to the moment it was constructed, crafted, made. Acts of forgery demand then that readers think about processes of textual transmission. So both the 1729 statute and forgery's etymological roots figure spurious texts much in the same way bibliographers approach all textual documents. 
analytical or critical bibliography, as David Vandermeulen explains, concerns, quote, the analysis of the physical features of books with the goal of determining something about the object's history, end quote. Whether literary or criminal, forgery prompts a manner of seeing that prioritizes the interpretation of physical clues over linguistic signs. It invites bibliographical analysis. Such was the case when a few among the literati caught wind of the manuscripts Chatterton had been circulating. Thomas Percy, in consultation with the antiquary Thomas Butler, inspected some of Chatterton's forgeries in a truly bibliographical mode, demonstrating how the materials could not have originated from the era Chatterton claims they did. In a letter to a friend, Percy relates Butler's findings, a snippet from which reads, he immediately pronounced them spurious. With regard to the parchment itself, it is evidently stained yellow on the back with ochre to look like old parchment. The fraud is so unskillfully performed that you may see stains and besmearings on the other side." End quote. Though Butler's paleographical and bibliographical investigation gave seemingly irrefutable evidence that the documents were not genuine, the early controversy raged for many years after, perhaps indicating a widespread reluctance to rely on such forensic treatments of literary works. And even as Chatterton's detractors, as Paul Baines observes, increasingly framed the controversy in legalistic terms. But at the moment the Raleigh controversy was reaching its pinnacle, prosecuting attorneys at the Old Bailey were developing more sophisticated strategies for securing guilty verdicts in forgery trials. They can therefore give us some sense of the bibliographical climate of the time. Edward Birch and Matthew Martin were convicted of forgery at the Old Bailey on September 11, 1771. With the, attorney, with the attorneys examining and cross-examining witnesses about handwriting, the color of ink, and most significantly, watermarks and chain lines, the trial has been cited by Jack Lynch as, quote, the first time such evidence had proven determinative in a legal proceeding, end quote. My dissertation that attempts to situate this trial within a longer history of bibliographical detection. Um, Sir Andrew Chadwick, whose will Birch and Martin forged, had died in 1768. Birch and Martin dated the forged will 1764, and it was this likely arbitrary decision that directly led to their hanging. The pair of forgers initiated their scheme when they contacted John Lloyd, Chadwick's former agent, about the discovery of papers of consequence concerning the deceased's estate. And um, Lloyd's account has all the hallmarks of the found manuscript trope. Um, as his agent, Lloyd was familiar with Chadwick's handwriting, but failed to recognize that the signature on the 1764 will was not genuine at the time Birch and Martin first brought it to him. Further witnesses acquainted with Chadwick were called to the stand at the Old Bailey to testify about discrepancies between the handwriting and the forged will, and that found in exemplars confirmed to have come from Chadwick. But none of these testimonies definitively classed the 1764 document a forgery. It was the expert eye of James Watman II who announced in court that he made more paper than anybody in England that ended up swaying the gentlemen of the jury. Watman linked the, pa the paper on which the forged will was written to a particular two-sheet mold he devised in January of 1768, a full four years after the date Birch and Martin's paper instrument had been claimed to originate. No two molds, Watman observed, were alike. Quote, they will differ in a wire or something, end quote. Lloyd had testified that Chadwick's bad case of gout made it impossible for him to write anything in the months prior to his death in 1768. But Watman's remarks were more than incriminating enough on their own. The most convincing witness at the Old Bailey that day was textual, diplomatic, and bibliographical. The document spoke for itself. 
The court was sufficiently impressed with Watman's services that he was called upon to act as expert witness again in the forgery trial of William Wynne Ryland in 1783. A renowned artist when the trial took place, Ryland was caught with a forged bill of exchange that defrauded the East India Company. As scholar Timothy Clayton points out, it is unclear whether Ryland actually forged the bill, though he had the skills necessary to do so. Um, and the evidence presented against him in court focused on his merely using the bill while knowing it to be a forgery. Whoever was responsible for the forgery had a steady hand, not even the deputy secretary of the East India Company, whose own signature appeared on the genuine bill, could distinguish be between the original and the fake copied from it. One George Monroe, whose handwriting also appeared on the bill, testified that he remembered that the, quote, ink sunk at the time I made the mark on it, end quote. And by that feature alone could he distinguish the genuine from the forgery. The defense counsel's cross-examination tried to undermine the force of Monroe's testimony by suggesting the unlikelihood that Monroe could, quote, recollect a blot. The defense attorneys, by then practiced in handling forgery cases, knew how to shake the jury's confidence in testimonies that relied on the recognition of ink and handwriting. But nothing could have prepared the defense for the precision of James, James Watman's testimony. Watman connected, again, a defect in a mold he hadn't used until 1782 um, uh, to a defect in the paper that the bill was written on, noting that there wasn't, quote, the smallest variation in any turn or twist of the wires. The bill Ryland was caught with had been dated 1780, two years earlier. As Jeffrey Day and Emily Hume observed in their article about Watman's role in the trial, the jury deliber deliberated for only half an hour before arriving at a guilty verdict. The swiftness with which the jury made the decision indicates <coughs> excuse me, the force uh, a bibliographical performance like Watman's could have on an 18th century audience. This moment in legal history raises questions as well about the development of bibliographical techniques of detection at the Old Bailey. Equipped with the skills I acquired in Professor Wilding's one-week course, I hope to continue my investigation of this relatively lesser examined feature of bibliography's history, as it may provide some insight into what conditions and events helped shape the field as we know it today. <laughs>